My name is Johnny Hamilton. I am a learning developer within the integrated talent management. I'm very much focused on anything dealing with innovation and learning. Those are my spaces as they come together. I really appreciate uh, your time coming here today. I'm very excited. This is a uh, book that I came across through a group called Creative Mornings. They, that particular session was hosted at a company called Philosophy in, in Los Angeles, actually in Santa Monica. And I talked within this networking group um, of Creative Mornings, which I highly encourage you to take a look at. They are all over the country. Once a month, they get together um, a bunch of creative people, and um, they it's a networking and a speaking uh, meetup. I met with a uh, one of the people that I met at that meeting. Um, told me that there's this person named Gregory Larkin. He just wrote a book about the things that you are doing in terms of creating a innovative. In, uh, innovative space within large companies. And in fact, he has a new term for this called an intrapreneur. Not an entrepreneur, but an intrapreneur. And that really got me excited. So we came up with, um, we could do a workshop. So that's where this has, uh, that's where the genesis of this. And Gregory has been absolutely wonderful in terms of um, giving us some of his time to share some of his ideas with this book. So I would like to turn this over to him um, about the book. This might get me fired, and this is Gregory. Great. Um, thank you all so much. It's a pleasure to speak with all of you, and thank you, Johnny, for introducing me. Um, before I dive in, I actually have a, a few questions I'd love to ask the people who are on the line just so I can get a sense of who's in the room. Um, one of the things I'd love to know, if you could type it into the messages, is um, how many of you have read the book already? Uh, or started the book is probably a better way to ask it. Um, yeah, that would be a, a really good informal poll just to take right off the gate. Um, and then uh, the other thing is I'd love to share a little bit about my background and, and who I am and how I got to this place. Um, before I do that, uh, oh, thank you, Chandra. That's wonderful. <laughs> That's good. So far, we've gotten a 100% read rate, which is, uh, which is great. It makes me, uh, makes me glow a little bit. So I'm based in, in New York City. I'm talking to you right now from my dining room in Brooklyn. Uh, and I'll, I'll tell you, uh, maybe I should start off by telling a little story about how this entrepreneur adventure began. Um, there's a, so there was a, a startup in 2005 that was um, one of the, the first organization that predicted the financial crisis of 2008 was not a huge investment bank. It was not Morgan Stanley or Goldman Sachs, or it wasn't a hedge fund. It was this tiny, scrappy startup based in New York that where the entire office smelled terrible. It was a little messy. It was quite disheveled. They never had enough resources to get anything done. 
And um, there's one very odd product manager in that investment research startup who studied uh, art and Italian and political science for their undergraduate degree, not an MBA. Uh, worked in this startup and in 2006 published the first report saying that the housing market is inflated, the boom cannot sustain, and it's not simply going to flatten out, it's going to erupt in a way that sends uh, a lot of companies in the market into, like Lehman Brothers might collapse, and we're looking at billions and possibly trillion dollars of damage. Um, that report was from a startup called InnoVest. What's remarkable about um, InnoVest was that uh, everything that I think we conventionally associate with InnoVest, um, with innovation I should say, was not a, character, a characteristic of InnoVest. They had never heard of design thinking. Artificial intelligence was something that happened in Silicon Valley. They were not agile. The blockchain hadn't yet been invented. And yet the scrappy startup was somehow able to predict the biggest financial calamity of our time. Um, InnoVest was my startup, and I was the head of product at that startup. And that was the first product I ever launched. Um, what was remarkable as well about that is that all of the banks that were our clients, as soon as we started uh, releasing that research and it started to gain traction and some of our predictions started to come true, those same clients became irate and very consistently would threaten us with a lawsuit first and then they would cancel their client contract second. And uh, what I realized listening to my CEO at that startup, Matthew Kiernan, um, he would invite me onto the calls when those, start, when those clients would say, listen, we're going to sue you and then we're going to cancel our contract. Um, and one after the other, he said the same thing. We are small, but we are not powerless. Uh, if you do that, we are going to take out a full-page ad, one on the back cover of the Financial Times and the second on the back cover of the Wall Street Journal, publishing our research and publishing your response to it. It's in our interest to do that. And if you think it's in your interest to have that happen, then by all means carry forward with your lawsuit and please cancel your contract. Um, I say that because uh, innovation, I would very quickly learn, is a product of courage more than it is a product of cutting edge technology. Um, and we got acquired for $17 million in 2009 and many of our entrepreneurial superpowers uh, disappeared when we had to make the transition from entrepreneurs to intrapreneurs, when we had hierarchy and bosses and very rigid processes. Um, it was extremely difficult to move fast. It was, very, it was extremely difficult to take those sorts of risks. And it also was extremely difficult to build a community of like-minded pirates in an organization where that wasn't necessarily um, why people were there and how they were motivated. And building a culture of where entrepreneurs can feel safe and find one another and thrive and build a community of courage together, um, I would 
quickly realized was the most important step one if, uh, if I would ever to achieve some of the same entrepreneurial breakthroughs that I experienced in a startup environment in a really large enterprise. Um, after InnoVest, I would go on to launch 33 of products um, at Bloomberg, at Google, at Nestle, Viacom, and across the Fortune 500. And what I would eventually realize is that entrepreneurship is as attainable, it is as possible in a huge corporation as it is in a lean startup like what InnoVest was. If you're willing to embrace uh, a few principles, and I want to share those principles in my book, um, but I want to share what those sort of key headlines are now. Um, and, and above all, I'd really like to have a conversation with everyone on the phone so that um, uh, I can hear what's on your mind, what resonates, what doesn't resonate. Um, I encourage debate, not just um, affirmation. So if anything doesn't resonate with your circumstance, uh, I'd actually really love to learn how that is, why that is, and, and if there's any um, suggestions that I might have about how to help you or where I might need to delve a little deeper. Um, so here are what the three pillars are. Um, the, the first pillar that I would learn is, uh, is to never pitch an idea and to only pitch an outcome. Um, innovation in any large company often takes the idea of these idea parties where um, everyone is, is invited to pitch an idea about how to solve a problem, how to launch, use new technology, something along those lines. Um, and what I would find after a long time is that it's very easy for people in positions of power to say no to an idea. They don't risk anything when they say no to an idea. Uh, in fact, sometimes it enhances their position inside of the organization. It makes them seem like uh, the very thin membrane separating their organization from reckless endangerment. Um, and an outcome is sort of different. When you present an outcome, and if you show up to a meeting where typically the delivery mechanism would be a PowerPoint deck, and instead of showing a PowerPoint deck, you actually show footage of people using a prototype of a product that was built with very little money um, and deriving value from it. Uh, showing them in a way where it solves a critical problem in their life uh, and shows the way forward of how that can be enhanced, suddenly there's a bit of risk associated with saying no. Um, it becomes more imperative for the organization to kind of double down on that. Um, and it takes an enormous amount of speed and in some circumstances a lot of um, courage to do that. Um, but it shifts the power dynamic in some fundamental way when people approach, uh, when people pitch an outcome rather than idea inside of a large organization. Uh, the second pillar of that is when you do pitch those outcomes, you also need to understand that being an entrepreneur is as much a, about birth as it is death. Um, and that maybe sounds a little bit more cryptic than it should, but it's, it's uh, it's an important point. Um, when you are an entrepreneur, you are solving an entrenched problem in a differentiated way. You're fixing what incumbent solutions cannot do. Um, 
And that is one of the most thrilling experiences that any creative person, innovator, inventor, entrepreneur, entrepreneur can ever engage in. But within an enterprise, it's, that's the birth piece of it, but within an enterprise, the death piece of it is that someone already thinks they're doing it. And for that, they don't just think they're doing it already. Um, very often, their entire sense of professional and personal self-worth is deeply intertwined with the kingdom that they have built to accomplish that problem, to solve that problem, to build whatever product it is they are responsible for. And inside of a large organization, there has to be some understanding of how much ego gets wrapped up in the territories and in the systems that people build around their business units. And uh, I've seen so many incredible products and incredible product innovators walk into an enterprise environment, into a corporate environment, build something that is transformative, that solves an entrenched problem in an interesting way, uh, that as a startup would be a great success. And in a corporate environment, it's perceived as a threat. And they are not um, prepared for the backlash that people who feel threatened by it um, are prepared, the, the backlash that they catalyze. And very, very rarely when they're not prepared for that are they able to survive it. Um, and one of the things that I hope that I put forward in my book, and, and certainly when I launch products with my clients and in workshops, is how do you ensure that as you're validating your idea with the market, as you're gaining traction with the people who need you to win, you also have a proactive solution, or a proactive strategy, rather, to uh, catalyze and accelerate organizational change so that you're creating a new normal for your company, so that a new generation of leadership has a voice, and so that there are new processes that become the way things are done around your organization. I've never seen that happen without a product which makes it necessary for it to happen. Because without that, um, what you very often have is an idea of what change might look like, an idea of why it's necessary, but you don't necessarily have market outcomes that make it mission critical to bring out those changes to life. Um, so understanding that you're giving birth, not just to a product, but also to organizational change that's going to be very hard for some of the people to digest um, and rally around. Uh, is, is the second pillar of being an effective entrepreneur. Um, and then the last thing I would say is, is that uh, is the power of the entrepreneur underground. Um, in every organization, there's a, a secret society of innovators, creatives, people who are wired a little bit differently. Um, and there are a few components of that. One of those components is uh, the godfather. There is always one executive in the organization who is very powerful, who uh, has a huge amount of influence and sway over the company, who is determined to create an innovation inflection point. Uh, they want their legacy to be one of change rather than one of seniority for its own sake. They want to use their seniority to um, 
create a new normal behind them. And when they find uh, the entrepreneur that is innovative and creative and has created a rallying cry to find other entrepreneurs, that is one of the most um, incredible, productive, uh, powerful moments of entrepreneurial creativity um, I've ever witnessed in a startup or in a, or in a huge company. Um, and it's very rare that that becomes the thing that gets broadcast after the ribbon-cutting ceremony. Um, that it started with someone who was, I'm thinking very specifically actually right now, of uh, probably the best godfather story of my life was someone who's a senior partner of, at PwC called Dave Pittman, who built an enduring alliance uh, with a 27-year-old full-stack designer called Brooke Cow. Um, Dave Pittman wore a three-piece suit to work every day. He was an accountant by training who trained himself to become a strategy consultant. He was the founder of PwC Japan. Brooke Cow was a 27-year-old design major with half of her head was shaved. And she was a brilliant designer. She could. She also taught herself to code and was the only person I've ever met who could learn a new coding language in two weeks. Um, she had this rare dexterity between user experience design and full-stack engineering that uh, I, I, I wish that upon everyone who's building anything. Um, but the, the, the bond that they created and the extent to which the work they built together served as uh, a battering ram that broke down some of the barriers to entrepreneurship inside of a 200,000-person company that was 179 years old at the time and created a new normal of how important projects got done and the speed with which they existed was phenomenal. And, and I've seen that that... Um, the odd bedfellows that create the entrepreneur underground, uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's a mission critical first piece of uh, creating a, an outcome and creating the momentum so that organizational change moves and locks up with uh, product validation and market validation. Um, and then finally, the, the last thing I'll say before I hand it over for, for, for uh, for a discussion is to be courageous. Um, every product I've ever launched, the way in which, let me say that a different way, I think what, the reason I wrote this book um, and my experience with innovation is that we have, very often we see the ribbon cutting ceremony of innovation working properly. We see what got built and we see who built it, and we might see the jump in uh, stock valuation, for example, or, or a jump in earnings. But very rarely do we actually know from a corporate standpoint who built it and how built it. And we don't see the moment very early on where someone had the courage to step forward and say, I know that building this is extremely hard. I know that very powerful and very entrenched interests are going to challenge me on this, um, and I do it. I'm going to do it anyway, and I'm going to build a community that makes it come to life, even if it gets me fired. Um, that, in my experience, is one of the most inspiring, moving, powerful moments of entrepreneurial uh, momentum, acceleration, and bravery 
in any domain, in, in the startup and in the enterprise, and the products that we all use every day that started with someone taking that bold stand, um, it's very largely a silent struggle. It's, uh, we don't know the names of who those people were. Um, and having experienced those moments, uh, I'm trying to shine a light on who those people are, and I'm trying to make the way in which they started and what they had to go through that made it work something that's accessible and actionable for every entrepreneur and every organization uh, that, that needs to catalyze that kind of change. Um, so that's who I am. Um, that's the book I wrote. Um, and I, I'd love to use the remaining time we have to uh, talk a little bit, hear from you, and, and answer any questions that you have. I should also say that um, uh, there's many other huge pillars of my book, but I didn't want to talk for much longer. So if, if you have read it and there's pieces of it that um, you want me to to to, uh, to speak a little bit more to while we have this time together, please let me know. I tried to be as brief as I could so that we could have as much discussion time as possible. Um, thank you. And thank you, Gregory. What I would like is when you have a question, please put it into chat. As we have questions that um, come up and have a good discussion in terms of how we can apply some of these concepts that uh, Gregory has spoken of into what we do, if we can just put those into chat, that way he can have in mind in terms of what would be some things that, um, you know, where the conversation might go. I do have one question to, actually before I put my question in, I want to turn it over to anybody else. Does anybody would anybody like to ask a question? Mm, this is Max. Yeah, I would like to ask a question. Actually, continue the conversation. A couple points. Hi, Max. Sure. Um, I can type it in the window, or I could just go go forward with it. You can go forward with it. Yeah, that's, please go ahead. I was just, as people are talking, if there's another question that comes into mind, please put it in the chat, and that way that can help guide the discussion. So please go forward. Okay, great. A quick, quick background. Um, I identify a lot with that person you were mentioning as uh, having a lot of uh, skills in both the UI and, and engineering. Mm -hmm. And when I joined the enterprise um, about uh, 2010, I joined as a contractor. It took about four years to become a full-time employee. And over that time, I was just innovating left and right because people on staff were unable to do that. And that's what kept me going into enterprise. When I joined full-time, I was allowed to do a lot of innovation. And I discovered that, that being able to find things in the enterprise is really impossible. I'm not thinking in terms of, of, of serving customers outside the enterprise as patients, for example, mm -hmm. uh, but mostly in terms of serving the business and business needs. So I ended up creating, um, you know, building foot warmers under my desk, computers and all those things to create a search engine that allowed us to find uh, things in, in the group that I was working in, in the data. So I, I built a data catalog. And through a couple of uh, leadership changes, we ended up getting behind that effort and it's now a full uh, full stack, both development, QA, 
and production in our, in our own internal cloud. But what I found in that process, I also built a couple other applications on top of that. What mm -hmm. I found in the process was that as it was endorsed, other people came in, and we now have uh, leadership uh, leaders that are owning that, and it pretty much ripped it out of my hands mm -hmm. and took it away and turned trying to operationalize those things in, in a different way so we can build a commercialized product. Mm -hmm. um, so the incentive for me kind of kind of disappeared overnight. There's no longer somebody coming in and supporting me and in, in building the product further. It's more saying, okay, you're great, you did a good POC and pilot. Now we're going to take it over and do something, and we're going to in same time going to have you be the person that supports you all behind it with a few other people. So to me, the incentive kind of evaporated. No, no conversations about you created value. So now we're going to compensate you for that. We're going to give you some more incentive to, to do more. And instead, I'm, I'm falling back and said, well, okay, great. You guys take that. So now I'm going to be looking at other things. Mm. Yeah. Um, and so to me, it's just the, the value of being able to create something. But I would think that somewhere in an, in an enterprise like this, anywhere else in a VC world, they would have gotten behind somebody who had the idea yeah. in order to build that person up. But in inter internal, they say, great, we paid you for it, so therefore, yeah. we own it, we can do what we want. What do you suggest, how do you suggest that we approach that kind of a thing? Yeah, um, so thank you, Max. Um, that's a, that's a wonderful question, and it's a, um, it's a, it's a question that I addressed. So uh, let me give you some quick housekeeping notes, and, and then I'll speak directly to the question. Um, I've just written an article on exactly that question, uh, which is called Getting Fired and Other Successful Exits for the Entrepreneur. Uh, and you can find that I'm a guest contributor at the uh, magazine Disruption Hub. And I, I, I've just spoken to exactly that thing. Um, so that's the housekeeping part. Let me give you the answer that you could read about later. Um, okay. It's also uh, uh, one of the chapters of my book is called um, The Right Exit for the Entrepreneur and Its Evil Twin. Um, so I, I think you, you hit the nail on the head, which is that um, the, the, the trappings of success for an entrepreneur deviate quite substantially from the definition of success for uh, someone who plans on working in a large company for their whole life. Um, getting a little bit of a raise or being put from a position of management to a senior vice president um, a lot of those things ring hollow for someone with the wiring of an entrepreneur who, from a emotional fulfillment standpoint, I think um, is more motivated to be there, do their most impactful work. And whatever joy you get from going from being a, a you know assistant vice president to a first assistant vice president or something of that nature, um, it doesn't last for very long when you're someone who is motivated to create and see your creation have an impact around uh, through the market that you serve. So there's this sort of tension between personal fulfillment and seniority um, and a feeling like you're doing your best work. Um, and with an organizational sort of 
definition of how you make switches. You, you move up the ladder. You go from managing two people to managing five people. You go from being a middle manager to being an executive, etc. Um, and along the way, you're peppered with stock options and maybe a little bit of uh, extra cash. And um, that, that often doesn't quite cut it. Um, and so um, one of the things as well is that if you're an entrepreneur and in a startup you create a really powerful product that has the desired effect, that makes an impact on people's lives and hits some of the, the, the more conventional milestones, which is you acquire users, you generate revenue, you get on some sort of an exponential 10x curve where you're, where you're um, winning market share or winning mind share from something else that was entrenched, you have something called an exit where not only are you celebrated publicly, you also walk away typically with millions of dollars, even if the run-up to that meant that you sacrificed quite a bit when it came to uh, a salary, for example. Um, so um, what, I, what I've found is uh, there are exits for an entrepreneur, and before you start building something, you have to know which, what, exit is, which exit you're gunning for. And the problem with exits as an entrepreneur is that um, each exit that looks is the right way to go forward is also has an evil twin that looks exactly alike and is in fact co-optioned disguised as promotion. And, and it's mission critical to understand that. And I'll go through a few of what those exits are that are successful um, now. The first exit I would say is something called the new normal where you do bring something to life and the organization essentially says, how did you do that? And how do we make that the way we do everything else around here? Because what you created in that amount of time with those few resources just needs to become the way we operate. So let us know how we can support you, who we need to hire, who you need, how, what the kind of access you need to our executive leadership team, you just let us know. We want that to be contagious. We want that to be the way things are done around here. Um, that's the new normal. In some ways, that's the greatest validation. Uh, the flip side of that is, the, the evil twin of that is you're sort of promoted in, in, on paper, but in reality, all of the scrappy sensibilities that built that product are soon co-opted, where the executive leadership you're reporting to only wants to sort of fold it into their business unit. They only want you to depend on the talent that they've been depending on and the processes that they've been using all along, um, so that when it's operationalized, it's really indistinguishable from every other product that's been built before. And as soon as that starts to happen, it's extremely disheartening for the entrepreneur. Um, and very often it doesn't, you find that whatever acceleration you're experiencing at the product innovation phase starts to go grind to a complete halt at the product operational phase. It becomes exactly like everything else. Um, that's a really hard thing to experience, and, and, and maybe it sounds to me like that might be something that you have experienced, Max. Um, the second um, entrepreneur exit is a, a spinoff. Um, your product is great, and 
we're just not sure that we can make it the new normal of how this organization works, but we do want to participate in its growth. Uh, we want to support you in whatever way we can without getting in your way. Um, so what we want to do is, is help your product operate and continue to thrive and make you the CEO of that business unit. And um, we'd like to have some sort of executive oversight as a board member, for example. But what we don't want to do is uh, give you some sort of a bear hug where we squeeze the life out of your progress. We don't necessarily think we can change the organization so that everyone operates in the way that you operate. Um, or at least we're going to defer that to another time. But we do want to help you, and we want to participate in your growth, and we want to be a good friend. And that's almost sort of like thinking of that product as a, uh, as a holding of a venture capital firm, essentially. Um, and then um, the third exit may or may not be the one you want to hear. But that's basically, um, yeah. So. That, that can be the gracious send-off where uh, someone takes you out for lunch, buys you a bottle of something very fancy, and says, you're wonderful, the product is wonderful, it's just we're not able to help you. So we want to be a very good friend of yours, give you a severance package so that you can find out, you can land on your feet, and you have time to figure out whatever's next, and we want to stay friends with you in whatever your next endeavor is. But this isn't working. Like we can't be the organization that makes you thrive and makes your talent come to life. And um, we uh, we want to support you and be a good friend of yours. But we just we're not that organization, and we wish we were. Um, so you know, let us know how we can help, and let's figure out what a gracious exit looks like for you. Um, the flip side of that is you're fired. Um, uh, you're fired, pack your stuff, get out of here. You're a little bit too punk rock for us, and you're pushing us in directions we're not comfortable with. Um, or the other side of that is I quit, effective immediately. Um, I, I, I think the, the key litmus test for all of those exits is what enables you to accelerate to keep accelerating at, at, at top speed and, and building at top speed and slowing down the least. Um, that's, that's the key bottom line. What, in what context are you able to have the most impact and the, the least amount of time? Um, and I'll say, too, that there, there's an opportunity cost to not committing to that. Once you have validation that you're able to bring an idea to life and have an impact on the desire in the market or with the user in a very rapid and accelerated point of time, um, you can very easily leave a lot of money on the table if you don't commit to that acceleration. We happen to live in a moment in history where um, new entrants steal market share from entrenched incumbents at an unprecedented rate. It's a wonderful time to be someone who's able to move very fast. Uh, barriers to entry, especially in enterprise products, it, um, are, have never been lower. They're falling fast. Um, and I think when you defer your accelerated impactfulness to another time, um, 
on some level, you're not you're leaving your, your market value on the table. You're leaving money on the table. Um, and you're certainly leaving fulfillment on the table. So I, I, I think all of those things need to be reconciled in some way to determine what your next best might be. Um, and I would also just encourage you once again, I've written extensively on this subject, um, but ha have an exit strategy in mind. I think I think what um, I read through the book completely, and, and first of all, it's really great to hear how you're being very consistent with what you've written. And second, is it this is the first time I really ever had words to put to everything that I've been through in the last five years. And so, to me, had I started with the, the concepts you've outlined, I would be much further along than I am now. And I still have opportunities here. There's no question this is a great place to be. But everything is needs to be considered and balanced, as you suggest. Mm -hmm. I think what we have here is very a very interesting uh, organization in that top-level leadership is very interested in creating new ways of doing things, new products for, for market, not just health care in general, but health products. Mm -hmm. and, and a lot of those, since I'm in, in, in an, uh, you know, IT, basically, we can develop products that help other enterprises, and we can sell those. So I'm in a position where I can, I can work with other organizations, other healthcare companies, and all those things. And it really comes down to uh, how much, how fast, how far can I go with the ideas, and can can everyone keep up with me? And and it's trying to balance that so that I've got people's interest at the same time. Um, you know, I'm happy with what I'm what I'm doing. I, I'd like. It's somewhere along the hybrid of, of what you what you've outlined uh, as an out, outcome or as, an, as exit strategy, mm -hmm. uh, and I think that hopefully at some point I can get into a little bit more with with uh, our case and talk with you a little bit more about it uh, to refine that. Uh, yeah, yeah, absolutely. And um, Max, there's just there's, there's one other thing I'd like to. So first of all, you make me smile when you tell me that you uh, wish you'd read this book five years ago. So thank you very much. It's, uh, um, it's really, uh, I feel humbled and honored when, when I hear that, so thanks. Um, and then the, the second thing I wanted to say is that there, uh, there's a really important differentiation between pigs and pogs, and I'm going to tell you what I mean. Um, when I say a pig, I mean the product innovation group of an organization, and then when I say a pog, I mean the product operation group of an organization. Yes, yes, that's right. And it, it, those are really different. They might seem similar. You might be a product manager in one. Or you might be a product manager or, a, or a, an engineer that thrives in, in the product innovation phase and doesn't thrive in the product operation phase. In fact, that's very often the case. Um, I happen to be someone that does really well in a product innovation environment. And I quite struggle when there's uh, when it's time to start operationalizing it and making sure that all the success we've achieved becomes stabilized so that we have a foundation mm -hmm. to then hit the next level of innovation and acceleration. Um, and I think knowing that about yourself is a really important uh, degree of self-awareness when you go into these organizations because it might be that you naturally thrive as a product innovator and have been um, 
have to operationalize it or the other way around. Um, and in reality, your best value inside of that organization and possibly outside of it is, you know, I get things to a place where I can hand it over to the product operational group and then I get the next thing ready and the next one. And if that's, if that's where you thrive and how you, you operate the best, um, that's, a, that's a really important um, constraint and, and it's a hard lesson to learn because you only learn it when you fail in one environment often enough that you start to say, you know what, I'm, I'm wired in a certain way and, and I need to be clear about that and, and figure out a way to, to find executive support who will um, put me in my strength zone and, and, and not put me in a position where um, I'm out of my strength zone. And I'll say, I'll say one other thing. Um, in, in the enterprise, you're very lucky if you know that about yourself because in a startup, if you're able to take an idea to its inflection point, and now you've raised your first Series A and your Series B, and now it's like, great, you have to keep the lights on. You have to scale. Um, you don't have the luxury of saying, you know what, I'm going to hand this over to somebody else. You're the founder. Uh, whether you like that about yourself or like that part of your job is not really that's something you have a choice about. Um, but in, a, in the enterprise, you do. And there is an organization there where you can hand off and say, look, let me make sure that this is as actionable um, and useful and easy to, to, to grow as possible, and let's circle back when it's time for when you hit a, a roadblock and you need me to inject a little bit more product innovation into your operationalized product. Um, on some level, that's that's one of the unfair competitive advantages of being an entrepreneur rather than an entrepreneur. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, point. Mm -hmm. All right. So, um, thanks, Max. Um, I want to make sure that we, we hit on some of, some of the other questions that are coming in. Uh, and how to build a community. Yeah, great. Um, so Johnny, you, you asked a, a great question, which is how do you build the community of entrepreneurs? Um, so I actually, Max inadvertently answered your question for you already. Um, there, there's a couple of, uh, there, there are some character traits that people that make great entrepreneurs have. Um, and then there's, so there's sort of the raw materials to look for. Um, and then the second piece of it is, um, what are some of the deliberate actions and strategies one can undertake in order for them to band together and find one another and, and, and do interesting things together? Um, so let me start with what those character traits are. Um, they tend to be weird. <laughs> They've had an interesting background. Very often they have not, this was a, a, a stop that they landed on, but it wasn't usually their end destination. Let me put that in a really concrete term. So when I was the head of innovation at Bloomberg, um, the people that found themselves working in finance were always had a very interesting story. Um, very often they studied art, or like me, they studied Italian. It wasn't um, where they planned on going, but they were fascinated by math and data. And they accidentally wound up working on Wall Street. Um, so it wasn't necessarily their end destination, but it was, a, it was a, an interesting detour that 
a fork in the road that they found themselves in. Um, people, the other character trait is that they very often um, began their career in startups. Uh, they are designers, they are developers, they have uh, an entrepreneurial background. They know what it's like to work at the speed and cultural norms within a startup. And either through acquisition or because they got through a phase in life where startup life was just not tenable anymore, um, they went into a very large organization. Um, so those are, I guess, two uh, background traits. Like they come from an interesting place and they've spent time um, in a startup environment. Uh, and then I guess the third thing is just sixth sense. They are involved in activities that are interesting. Uh, they go, for example, like what you're talking about, Johnny, they will participate in book clubs with authors who have written books on it. And I think that's the, 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 the piece that's also important. There has to be some opportunity to have um, a kind of coming out party for all the entrepreneurs in a big company. Um, events that enable them to raise their hand and say, yeah, I kind of do belong in that world. Um, I'm drawn to it. I, I feel an affinity toward people like that. Um, and creating those events or uh, creating brown bag lunches around innovative products that have been launched where you want to talk to people that are interested and in what brought that to life in such a short amount of time and in such an interesting way. Um, there's, there's opportunities to subtly invite those people to raise their hand. Um, and then there's the not-so-subtle ways of doing that, which is um, once you build a relationship with an executive godfather who's willing to support you, who is, if not the CEO, has the ear of the CEO. Um, use them to be very proactive and loud about what you've built, how you built it, and what makes the culture of your band of entrepreneurs uh, a good thing why that should become the new cultural norm for the organization. Um, leverage whatever influence and visibility they have to uh, broadcast the fact that people who are wired like entrepreneurs can find a way to thrive inside of that company. Um, and if, because if it's all hints and nods and subtleties, um, it's very hard to gain scale in that way. And it's very hard to sort of hold leadership accountable to um, making that a cultural new normal within the organization. Um, so uh, yeah, I think that combination of understanding what the characteristics or background is of the people that tend to be good entrepreneurs and are wired like innovators, um, step one. Step two, find ways to get them to come together and build community with one another that are sort of subtle. And three is uh, find a way for it to not be subtle so that someone in a position of power who inspires followership who has the ear of the organization and on some fundamental way speaks for the company, um, can, can make some sort of an announcement that this is the new normal, this is, this is a good thing, this is something that we should aspire to do. Um, I'm going to say one last thing, which is conferences, external conferences, are a wonderful, wonderful way 
to make that announcement. Um, whenever you have the stage, are able to get the stage of an external conference and give a talk about innovation in your company, how it works, what you're wrestling with, what you're struggling with, what, uh, what problems you've been able to solve that are ubiquitous problems across innovative um, organizations. Um, a, that's a good thing. Um, it makes your company look good. It makes you look good. And, and B, um, it also has a, another more subtle result, which is that externally, you'll now find that there's an external excitement about innovation inside of your organization. People um, from the outside and potentially some of your customers will now start to um, uh, that it creates an expectation that you have innovators and that they have a mandate to do innovative things together. Um, so it's really important also to, I think, create some degree of external accountability for um, the entrepreneurs within your organization to find one another and um, be the, the sort of external face of the company on some fundamental level. Um, Let me see if there are any, uh, great. So uh, it's 2.50 and I want to be really mindful of time. Um, pitching an idea rather than an outcome. Uh, yeah, sure, I'm happy to expand uh, a little bit of, um, a little bit about that. Actually, I'm going to give you a really concrete example of that um, with the product I just launched uh, earlier, about two months ago, I, I, I launched this with Nestle. Um, so uh, Nestle approached me with a new, um, the first time I've ever in my, the 33rd product I've ever launched, and it was the first one I've ever launched that was not um, software. It was, a, it was an actual drink, which is not, it's totally not something I ever did before, but um, uh, a couple rules that I have about every product, and this product is no different in that regard, is that um, give yourself eight weeks. If you cannot launch in eight weeks, you never will. I don't mean that you have to finish in eight weeks. I mean that you have to launch in eight weeks. Be realistic about what a meaningful, uh, change is? What's the point of no return? We built something that's so good in eight weeks that it would be a shame for the organization to not follow through with it. There's external accountability for the organization to move forward with this. Um, what is an outcome that we can reasonably build that will uh, surpass expectations both internally about what we're capable of doing and externally about um, how much value we can add in an accelerated time frame? That changes in every business. Um, and lately I've become kind of intrigued in businesses that are like healthcare, for example, um, but also in some really big civil engineering firms that have reached out to me where uh, the build cycle tends to be very long in years. Um, and the risks for getting it wrong are quite extreme. So what does an eight-week product increment look like in that context is, is kind of different when in relative to a drink. So I'm going to put a pin on that. That's just my own, maybe that's my next book. Um, so with Nestle, what we did, uh, 
specifically the way that a, a branded product like a drink will work is you will spend years with focus groups and building out what's the look and feel of the product, what is the, 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 the um, messaging around it, what is the design of it, what outlets are we going to reach out to to get our TV commercials launched, where are we posting billboards, what's our social media strategy. Um, and then after you have all of those things worked out, typically what you'll do is you'll then launch a massive campaign to get it on shelves as soon as you come out with that first wave of massive um, advertisements. And you'll spend, you know, probably $50 million before a single person has access to the design. And, and, and what you'll often find with that $50 million is that uh, you've already spent an enormous amount of time getting your advertisement message out there um, and in a focus group you've done it. So you have this really um, weird leap of faith between uh, your first like laboratory experiment of how the outreach is supposed to look and the first time customers have an opportunity to buy it. And so there's a very high degree of failure. You, 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 all the risk is sort of um, postponed and delayed until you get to a place where the organization agrees about the brand strategy. Um, and then you are willing to launch the experiment. You see that $50 million might have been unsuccessful, that you had a lot of false positives about what the market wanted. So, uh, when I worked with Nestle on this drink, and I, I wanted to very much avoid that mistake. I wanted to front load the risk so that in a very short amount of time, we're validating in a meaningful way and as, and as real life an environment as possible about what, that, what people want and are willing to pay money for. So within, so a couple things we did. We found five high-end natural food markets in New York City that for about $2,000, us paying them $2,000 a day, they agreed with us so that we could actually place the prototype of a design in a bottle, fill it with tap water, not the actual drink, and place it on shelves with that company. So that instead of having a bunch of brilliant package designers who create labels for food and beverages, arguing with one another about what the market wants and would react to. What we instead had was everyone was right. We came up with 10 designs. And as soon as 100 people walked by the, the refrigerator cases, and whichever design had the most pickups, meaning someone walked by, was looking for a drink, picked the bottle up, wondered about it, we would count that as a conversion. We would then spend 10 bucks um, that, give that person $10 and ask them a bunch of questions. Why did you pick that up? What, did you, what do you think this is going to taste like? Why did it, is there anything about the design that made you curious? Who do you envisage being the person that would most like this drink? Very quick questions, $10 off their bill. And so in a very short amount of time, we were able to let the market tell us what was the best design. We would also get some demographic information. So we would learn um, what income brackets like the design, what age groups, was it male or female that this appealed to the most. And so in eight weeks, we were in a position so that we really narrowed it down to two designs that worked and eight designs that did not work. 
Um, then we were in a position to then go to the board of Nestle and say, we've been busy for eight weeks with a very small amount of money relative to the amount that you would normally use to launch a core product. We've learned an enormous amount about what this drink needs to say about itself, how it needs to appeal. Sorry, let me say one other thing. Once we got a design that was working, we then, in a very localized market, meaning like three or four zip codes within New York City, launched a social media campaign to advertise this fake drink. Just to see what do we need to say about it? Should we associate with someone like Gwyneth Paltrow or some other influencer? Does it make a more compelling case when it's associated with medical benefits, like nine out of 10 moms say. Um, so we did all of this really interesting, very inexpensive, lightweight experimentation just to get a sense of how did people respond. And what that meant was that by week six, I guess, when we, and we had someone who was um, the CMO of Nestle was watching this the whole time and was really excited about it. So we had a godfather from the, the minute we started. Um, so in a very short amount of time, we made a case to the executive leadership over the, of the organization and shared with them what's working. We have validation about who the ideal customer is. What is the messaging that resonates? What's the design that resonates the most? How much traction could we get if we were to simply expand from the five stores that have seen this on shelves to all of Brooklyn, for example, or all of New York City, or all of the Northeast region? And what is the different scaling mechanism so that we can start rolling this out um, in an incremental way so that eventually we have a snowball of validation? Um, and that all happened within eight weeks. Uh, and, it, and, it, and it was a much more compelling case to make because in some fundamental way, we had front-loaded all of the mistakes that Nestle typically would make over a two-year period with $50 million spent um, and front-loaded it into an eight-week engagement where there was very little guesswork about who the market was, who the customer was, and what they wanted to hear that would entice them into this beverage. Um, that's, a, that's, a, that's an example of my most recent eight-week sprint, but I think that's been analogous over every product I've ever done. Um, the, the hard thing about an eight-week sprint is identifying what is the small 